Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 313, recorded August 10th, 2011. How the Internet Works, ICMP, and UDP. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW8. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for security now, not security in a few minutes, not security later, security now, the show that keeps you safe online. And, of course, joining us, the man, the myth, the legend, GRC.com's Steve Gibson. Uh, welcome back, Steve. It's good to be with you again. I didn't think I'd be here, but Leo's got jury duty again. Yeah, he actually, and as we know, he it's not that he's still waiting to see whether he has jury duty, as he was a week ago, but he actually did get empaneled as it's called, and he's one of the 12 jurors, or I guess he could be one of the auxiliaries or the, the extras, but uh, he's on a really interesting case, which he can't talk about because you're not supposed to when you're on a jury until, I guess, afterwards. Then I think you're released. Yeah, right. Once the, once the, uh, once the, the case is over, you're, you're cleared. Uh, so we can't know anything more about it. But it's, it sounds, from what he was able to say before uh, he actually went, it sounds really interesting. So I'll be... I'll be curious to hear about it the judge thinks it'll take two weeks so i'll be here on security now this week and next week and leo will be back after that barring some strange courtroom behavior and we're glad to have you there the the number 13 figures oddly in this week's security now uh it is we're episode number 313 Mm -hmm. and we're also the second tuesday we just passed the second tuesday of the month so we've got the standard Microsoft security updates, of which there were 13, ah. and and a, a mega patch from Adobe fixing 13 sec- critical vulnerabilities in Flash and Air and um, Shockwave. So everything is 13 at wow. this point. That's yeah. interesting. Well, so we're, also, the- uh, we're also got number one. Involved because not only is this episode number one of year number seven of Security yep. Now, right? Uh, but we're also going to be talking about how the internet works, ICMP and UDP. And if I understand it right, ICMP is Protocol One. Uh, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah and it's UDP also is seventeen or no six? I think it is. It's also two thousand eleven. There, I stretched another couple ones. <laughs> All right, enough numerology. We're going to get to all the security news and security uh, uh, updates in a second, but want to thank our sponsor uh, for today's show, Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. I use them for forecast. I use them for sword and laser. Uh, We use them for all kinds of twit stuff. Uh, Squarespace is absolutely fantastic and easy. Try it out. 
for free. You don't have to use a credit card. Uh, go to squarespace.com. Within seconds, you can have a blog up and running, and it'll look great. You don't have to hardly do anything but pick a name, and it'll look good. Then you can start getting in and using the tools to customize it to make it look exactly the way you want to look. If you want to get in there and tweak the code, you can, but you don't have to. Uh, you can just move things around, add modules, even import your old blog. Let's say you just want to try it out and see how it looks. Import your old blog from WordPress or TypePad or Movable Type or, or Blogger uh, and say, you know what, that, that, that looks pretty good. I want to try this out. If you decide to leave Squarespace at any time, you can always take your data with you. They, they are sworn to data portability. Uh, so check them out. That's one of the reasons I like Squarespace is they do things right. They're reliable. And the nice thing is they provide the back end for you so that as your site gets more popular, you don't have to worry about adding capacity. It's all taken care of for you. Sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card to try it out and start building your website. And if you actually decide to keep the service, we're going to give you 10% off for six months when you use the offer code SecurityNow8. Now that we're in the month of August, yeah, more numbers to remember, but SecurityNow8, that's the one to use when you go and try out squarespace.com. Uh, and like I said, no credit card, no risk. Go there right now. Try it out. Build yourself a website. Uh, maybe uh, maybe uh, a little uh, personal security blog out there. Maybe uh, just an update of, of what's going on in your life. doesn't matter. Whatever you got to say, ch- check it out, squarespace.com. We thank them for their support of security now. And let's get into the security updates. So um, at, we are, we, we're seeing the same pattern that has been noted by a number of, of other security watchers, and that is that Microsoft is alternating the size of their security patches from large to small and large to small month after month. Last month, we had a, a, an almost not worth mentioning little tiny patch month. Uh, this month, we have a big one. And two months ago, we had a big one. So is that by design? I don't know, but I mean, it's holding. It's really odd that they'll just do a mega one and then a little one and then a mega one and a little one. So uh, it is. it has been noted uh, in the industry that Microsoft's following that pattern, and they do so again. So they've issued 13 updates, which address 22 different vulnerabilities. Um, the uh, We get the standard update to the MSRT, the Malicious Software Removal Tool, which they're continuing to refine and add signatures to month by month. And, of course, we know that that does a quick scan to, uh, prior to applying patches because what Microsoft discovered the hard way was that patching was failing in instances where users' machines were infected with something which which was interacting with their patches. So they had to add this preemptive MSRT to make sure that it was safe to change the the DLLs that make up Windows because some of these um, uh, the malware was 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 written specifically to particular versions of the of the Microsoft prior patches. And so if anything was updated it could cause like the system to break. It wouldn't be able to reboot, and users were blaming Microsoft when it was a fa- in fact the, the the case that their system was was um, already in bad shape. Already had something had you know, crept into it. Um, in these twenty two vulnerabilities, there were only two that Microsoft rated as really critical. Uh, we get the sort of the standard cumulative 
patch for IE, which sort of is a reissue of IE. Um, and interestingly, it was rated critical for versions 7, 8, and 9 of IE, but only important for number 6. <laughs> That's usually and, the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, well, what, what we're seeing is... And this has also sort of been a, a, an ongoing theme for us. We noted, we, we, also, we often note that that older software is just has less problems because it's had more time to get pounded on. Yeah. And so, so Microsoft is doing new things, introducing new code in their newer versions of IE, and some of it is going to have problems. But you know, they're not messing with with IE version 6 anymore so it's it's sort of stabilized um in fact that's exactly the case with the second critical problem which exists in the dns server code that ships only with windows 2003 and windows 2008 this the server editions it does not exist in their their earlier server editions because those servers didn't have support for something called naptr DNS records. This this NAPTR is a new type of DNS record, which I don't know. I, I when I look at it, I, I just close my eyes and I think, why don't we leave well enough alone? <laughs> because it stands for naming authority pointer, and it it actually introduces something known as regular expressions or regexes mm-hmm. into DNS. Well, regexes are an amazingly powerful but also nightmarish technology. And the idea of adding regexes into DNS queries just, I mean, it just makes my head spin. It's like, okay, do we have to just keep messing with this stuff that already works? Well, it's, you know, we're, this show is about how the internet works and we're moving through um, t- t- taking a very, you know, take our time, slow, methodical, deep look at the technologies. And DNS is one of these that has existed for decades and has been amazingly solid and resilient. Yet, in pushing it forward, we're beginning to break it. We're beginning to create problems. And now, so- is this, this is something? Is this something Microsoft is implementing, or something that's being implemented that Microsoft is is taking the lead from? The folks who um, manage DNS. It's an ex- it, it is a it, it is an RFC, so mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a standard internet protocol. But what happens is that that several people reported to Microsoft privately that if a malicious user were to register a domain where the the domain server contained these NAPTR records. Then arrange to query Microsoft's DNS server asking it to resolve a NAPTR record. Then Microsoft's server would go query this other domain that contained these. Mm -hmm. And there was a standard coding error in Microsoft's implementation of this NAPTR pointer processing which doesn't surprise me because your regular expressions are a real 
I mean, you're just asking for trouble messing with regular expressions. So we've added those to DNS now, and Microsoft didn't do it completely right. So now, how does this fit? The, how does this fit in with DNS Sec? Because isn't DNS? Aren't we supposed to be trying to lock down DNS and make it so secure? Why would we add regular expressions to it? I know, I know. Actually, DNS Sec is essentially signing of records to prevent spoofing of them because D- DNS is a non is a non-secure protocol. That is, it actually travels over UDP, which is one of the topics we're, uh, this week. We're going to talk about ICMP and UDP as the first two of the Internet protocols that we discover. And DNS is carried by UDP, which unlike HTTPS, which we also often talk about, can be protected by you know, the, the uh, SSL also known as TLS security, there is no similar security for DNS. So it's very possible for bad guys to perform man-in-the-middle attacks on DNS, altering the DNS records as, as they're going out or ba- back and forth to a client that, that's making a query. So DNSSEC is a means of adding that missing security to DNS, so it's it's different from the NA pointer records. Mm. And the good news is it has been around for a long time. And this stuff is just slow to get adopted. When 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 you look at when these various standards are created, it just inertia on the internet. Just well, I mean, and another example of that is IPv4 versus oh, IPv6. Yeah, right. Six has been around forever. Well, not forever, but for you know over a, a decade. decade. And yeah. yeah, we're just now saying, oh, well, I guess we really have to get around to doing this. You know, nobody wants to. So anyway, the, the, the point is that in something new, which is adding bells and whistles to DNS, Microsoft made a mistake and it created what they acknowledge is a critical error in, two, in, in Windows 2003 and 2008 DNS server. People who are not running DNS on the, on their Windows servers don't have a problem. So it's only if you do have the DNS service running, there's a mistake in it that can be exploited. So that gets patched. Um, and then aside from that, there were nine other important fixes, um, six of which were potentially, you know, had a high exploitability rating the way Microsoft now rates these things. Um, there were some remote code execution in the data access components. A uh, there was a, a similar remote code execution in Visio. Oh. So if if you had Visio installed and you and someone sent you a maliciously crafted Visio file and you opened it, it could run code on your machine and so forth. So you know, basically, standard standard mm-hmm. advice is uh, keep Windows patched all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and then. <laughs> Similarly, it's uh, Adobe's turn. Adobe's been really quiet now for a few months. We haven't had much happening with them, but now now they're just letting loose the floodgates. All of their main components uh, are being updated, Flash, Air, and Shockwave. I put a bunch of links in the show notes for users who can go to the show notes to get these links because um, if you go to adobe.com slash software slash flash slash about then that will show you that'll bring up a web page that shows you your current version and also contains links to the latest 
I had been at 10.3.181.14 and flat for Flash, and Flash has now been moved to 10.3.183.5. So anyone who's behind does need to get themselves made current. This fixes 13 critical vulnerabilities that affect Windows, Mac, Linux, Solaris, and uh, Android platforms. So pretty much across the board. And of course, not iOS because iOS is doesn't have Flash and, and refuses to support Flash. Um, and not Chrome because Chrome automatically updates itself. So you don't have to take any action. Exactly. And as I, I think what we've discussed before is that that... Apparently, Google has a different relationship with Adobe where they've got their essentially their own version of Flash that they're building in and may be responsible for themselves or may get updates directly from Adobe, which they then push out in Chrome. So it's, as you said, it's just doing it automatically by itself. Um, Air also got updated. And, you know, I'm reluctantly using Air because I use TweetDeck, which uh-huh. is hosted – on air, it's so, the only thing I it, use too. Yeah, uh, you know, and I just I, I'm I wish I didn't have to, but I do. So you, if you are a it, actually, if you just relaunch the thing you use Air with, it's very good. I know the TweetDeck is always telling me, oh, there's a new version of Air, so you know, let's you know download it and then then restart TweetDeck, and then you'll be good to go. So you can simply do that, or you can go to get.adobe.com/air in order to update yourself. It just gives you a download. Um, and as regards Shockwave, I'm always reminding people that they probably don't need it, that it's the kind of thing that, you know, maybe five years ago, you know, if you were wanted to, like, do elf bowling or something, <laughs> you, might have, you might have needed Shockwave. <laughs> I forgot player. all about elf bowling, yeah. <laughs> um, but... You know, unless you really are addicted to elf bowling, and I think that you probably aren't anymore, uh, it's worth removing it. Now, what you can do is you can just go to adobe.com slash shockwave slash welcome. And I did that under and, and in Firefox, and it said, oh, click here to get the plugin. Don't. What that means is you don't now have it, and that's better than, you know, having a version that just needs to be maintained all the time and represents one more way that bad stuff can get into your computer. So the, the, what, what you would like, to, the outcome you would like is adobe.com slash shockwave slash welcome and then to be offered the plugin and you just say, oh, step away and, you know, close that tab and, and just know that you don't have it and you don't need it. If it does, if it is there, then I would seriously look at just removing it from whatever browser you've installed it in. Unless you know you have to have it, if you know you need it, then yes, you do want to make sure that you're current because it shares these vulnerabilities with the other tools. So certainly worth doing. Unless you're, if you're really into that, that into elf bowling, you probably have more problems <laughs> than just your security issues at this point. Yeah, tr- I would say try Angry Birds. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, 
It's hosted on Flash, and there then you, you don't need Shockwave. <laughs> All right, let's move into the security news. And I was really excited when I saw this XKCD uh, cartoon yesterday. Uh, Randall Monroe, who does XKCD, is really smart, really funny, uh, and it's absolutely worth reading this every day. But as soon yep. as I saw his, his cartoon for today, Password Strength, I immediately thought of you, Steve, and, and the Haystacks, uh, because he's talking about exactly what you were talking about, which is... You make these really complicated passwords that you can't remember, and they're actually less secure than an easy-to-remember password. Well, yes. Um, so it's a great cartoon. Uh, I know that I'm involved in social networking when thousands of, of people are sending me uh, this cartoon. It, uh, it, it, it really filled up my Twitter feed, and I was glad for it because I, you know, I appreciated knowing about it. Um, so... Just for those who don't, you can just go to xkcd.com today, or if you're not listening to the podcast today, it's number 936. So xkcd.com slash 936, which will get you to this, you know, fun cartoon. Um, I have to imagine, Tom, that, that this was inspired, in fact, by the Haystacks page because the the second frame of the cartoon talks about how how 2 to the 28 bits of entropy or or 28 bits of entropy is 2 to the 28 combinations which takes 3 days and he's correct about that it's like 72 hours or something at 1000 guesses per second which is exactly the number i use on the haystacks page and then he says parens Plausible attack on a weak remote web service. Yes, cracking a stolen hash is faster, but it's not what the average user should worry about, which is exactly the language or a version of exactly the language I have on that page. So, I, I you know, I'm, I'm delighted that Randall picked up on that and probably knew about it. The only problem I have is that his math is wrong. Um, he, in the first frame, he talks about, you know, he uses little squares. I mean, I love how graphical and, you know, XKCD-ish this is. It, it's, it's typical for the work he does. But he's not assigning bits for entropy correctly. Um, and he's doing it in a way that benefits the point he's trying to make. So I'm not criticizing him i'm just you know for the sake of our listeners if you put his example into the password haystacks page it shows that you've got where where he says his example has 28 bits of entropy i calculate it at 72.3 and so rather than it being three days at a thousand guesses per second. It's actually 1.83 billion centuries at a thousand guesses per second. So, so, but that really wasn't the point he was trying to make. He was he was trying to make the point, and and the cartoon does beautifully that what we've done in trying to create bizarre passwords that are impossible to to memorize is we've actually in some cases, not come up with something that has substantially more strength than, 
in, in his cases, he suggests taking four easily memorized random words from the dictionary and concatenating them. He, so he computes them as each having 11 bits of entropy. So he's assuming that we had a dictionary of 2,048 words, because that's 11 bits, and that we randomly chose them from the dictionary to assemble a four-word sentence, which is easy to remember. So 11 bits of entropy each times four words is 44 bits of entropy. And, he, and then he says 2 to the 44 is 550 years at a thousand guesses per second so that's clearly long enough since none of us are going to live well, that long and on haystacks Probably. it says 78.3 billion trillion centuries <laughs> so it's 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 an order of magnitude more secure than than the first password still even when you're comparing them through haystack now the problem with this is that he ends up with uh seven he, his, he, so his example is correct horse battery staple and that's a total of 25 characters it's surprising how many websites won't let you use a 25 character password uh, yeah we've talked about this before it's so frustrating yeah yeah so you know some require like between 8 and 16 so you'd have to drop a word or two or something so really if you end up with a website that that has a, a ridiculously small or a worrisomely small maximum password length, then you're really forced to expand the, to, to expand the size of the character set. You know, he's using all lowercase. And, you know, I mean, so I would say, yes, that's a good password. But we also know there are other ways to create strength. And in fact, explain xkcd.com which apparently follows xkcd.com's cartoons one for one, you know, like daily. Um, um, he explains this and has a link to the Haystacks page at GRC, explaining that this really, you know, comes from, from an understanding of, of what it takes to make passwords strong. And, and, of course, I take the, the point or, or the position that as soon as you're forced to do brute force cracking, length matters more than entropy, which was the, the theme of the Haystacks page. So, yeah, just sort of a fun little coincidence on the day that we're recording the podcast. So, And – go ahead. I was just going to ask, if I use correct horse battery staple, I don't have to – Re- I, my immediate reaction is, well, those are four dictionary words. Wouldn't a dictionary attack find them? But the fact that they're four concatenated random words makes it so that it's harder for that dictionary attack to work? Well, okay. So he- here's one of the things that's hardest to get your head around. And this mm-hmm. is the reason that first frame in the cartoon is a little misleading. Is, for example... Um, he p- appends a number three on the end, and he gives that three bits of entropy because, you know, that could be any one of ten digits. But the key is the attacker doesn't know that you put a digit on the end. If you said to the attacker, oh, and by the way, while you're trying to guess my password, I ended it with a digit. Well, then the attacker would go, oh, thank you very much. Now I don't have to try all the lowercase alpha, all the uppercase alpha, and special characters, 
I'll just try, you know, zero through nine. And so in that case, he's right. That would be about three, actually less than three bits of entropy. No, it would be a little bit more, actually, because, mm. you'd, because three bits would be eight combinations. But the point, the key of the concept is the bad guy has no idea what you've done. And um, if they did have an idea, if if they if the bad guy knew that, for example, a password a password was for dictionary words, then yes, then then you restricted mm-hmm. the, the 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 domain of experimentation. But the bad guy, you know, has no idea what you've done. So so the fact is, there are. It is, it is much easier to make a much stronger password of a certain length by, by adding, you know, changing the case and salting it with some special characters. I mean, even, for example, if you took correct horse battery staple and you just, you just stuck dashes in between mm-hmm. or your own special joiner character that you didn't tell anyone about, that makes it radically stronger because the bad guy doesn't know. What you if you make any change to it, because and that was the real the real insight that that the haystacks page tries to bring across is that that anything that is that you do that is not gonna that is that is gonna sort of take it off the map the all the feedback the attacker gets is it either matches or it doesn't they they, they don't get. You know, it's not horseshoes and hand grenades. They don't right. get, ooh, that was a close one. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I so think that's what our minds warmer. do. You're, when you're we look warmer. The, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Expect, we think that. We're like, oh, well, we'll get close and then we'll start to figure it out. But <laughs> I, I think the only weakness that I can, I can think of in this is if somebody cracks a password in some SQL injection attack uh, at a site that was not properly salted and, and they get your format. And they yes. want to go after you. And so they go, yes. okay, it looks like he takes the last two letters of the domain name and then always has the word dog spelled with a zero. And then if they get that little extra bit of information, it would undermine this. But otherwise, that this is definitely the way to go. Cory Doctor on Boing Boing pointed out there's a, a study done at the University of London showing the cost of having these complicated passwords because people can't remember them and then they rely on the less secure questions that allow you to recover passwords and all that stuff. So easy right. to remember secure passwords is, it would, would save us time, money, hassle, and all kinds of things. Or maybe passwords that you don't need to remember. Yeah, now that's I'm really interested in that. Are you ready to... Well, not ready to talk about it yet, but I will tell our listeners, because you and I were talking about it before we began recording, the thing that I have alluded to a number of times that I've said to Leo, I'm working on something, I think it's good, but I'm not ready, I don't know yet. Well, for actually, for quite a while, we have known, the, 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 a, a careful analysis of it is, has been done, and I have a way of doing non software encryption that is paper based encryption just using a piece of paper as a sort of like a a, a a custom lookup chart of a certain kind it is possible to do really strong encryption with no technology and that's what i wanted was in fact it's called off the grid because it uses a grid but it's also not 
technologically based. It uses software to create the grid, but the actual use of it uses no technology. So there's nothing to store, nothing to remember. It, it turns domain names into a custom matching password for, for that domain. So each domain will just automatically get a different secure password, which you don't need to store, you don't need to remember. Um, you can just use this thing again and it will give, always give you the same password when it's given the same domain name. So I'll have that in a few weeks, and uh, we'll talk about how it works. That's thrilling. That's intriguing. I can't wait for that. The only weakness there is nobody has pen and paper anymore. We're going <laughs> to start buying some pads of paper. <laughs> All right. I've been Ever since we talked about Portable Sound Blaster last week, I just hear dogs barking everywhere now. Uh, it's one oh. of those, you know, you learn a new word and suddenly you notice it everywhere. My dogs or, are or really you- good, but I hear, I hear them all around the neighborhood. Yep. Um, I spent a Sunday afternoon with, with a friend with dogs barking in other people's backyards. And I think what happens is people must put their dogs out and then they leave. Yeah. So they don't, they don't realize that their dog is just bored and just sitting there trying to like bark so to be let back in the house. You know, it's probably the fact that when the dog barks normally, then his, the dog's owners let him in the house right. and he's happier, you know, being around. So inadvertently, they're training the dog to bark when they let him out in the backyard, but they, they, they leave and don't know. Anyway, uh, I, I had a note here because um, I've continued to do some, some brainstorming and research in the background. And one thing really interesting happened that I wanted to share with our listeners because I know that so many of our listeners have have been reading uh, Demon, the book by Daniel Suarez, and the, who, whose sequel is Freedom TM. And one of the things that we encounter early in the book in the book is uh, Matthew Sobel's technology known as hypersonic audio, where he's able to to geospatially locate a speaking voice as if it's in some location right next to you, like speaking out of the air. They use that minority report too. Yes. And it turns out that's true. It it actually can be done. And um, what what intrigues me about it is, um, and it's actually, it's something that I want to experiment with, with this portable sound blaster project is essentially you're able to, you're able to transmit ultrasonic frequency, which cannot be heard by the target. That is, for example, bird hearing falls off around 8,500 cycles per second. So anything above that, birds won't hear, like, like 20 kilohertz. And if you, if you amplitude modulate that ultrasonic frequency, what, what happens is sound the 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 air it turns out is an is a has a nonlinear response in the face of high pressure sound waves the individual sound waves actually heat up the air a little bit and change its temperature on a wave by wave basis the rate of propagation of sound through a physical medium is a is a function of temperature and pressure and humidity and so that change in temperature changes the speed of sound through the air and 
what happens is the the individual waves that you're emitting interact with themselves and and so what what that does is it creates nonlinear propagation well we know that a slide rule is nothing but adding it, it, it's essentially it's performing addition on a logarithmic scale that is mm-hmm. on a nonlinear scale so it that's the way that addition becomes multiplication well we also know from trigonometry there are a whole raft of trigonometric identities one of them says that if you multiply two sine waves together what you get is the sum and and difference of the angles so in terms of frequency if we send out two different frequencies we end up getting the the sum and difference of the frequencies so for example if we send out instead of just a 20 kilohertz tone which is inaudible if we send out a 19 kilohertz tone and a 21 kilohertz tone at the same time that is subtract a thousand and add a thousand then the difference of that is two kilohertz Mm -hmm. and the sum is 40 kilohertz Well, we can't hear 40 kilohertz either, but we can hear 2 kilohertz. And so what this does is this creates a means for producing audio that is audible sound from inaudible sound, yet it has the same directivity as ultrasound, which is highly beamable. You can beam ultrasonic frequencies um, very easily, whereas you cannot beam normal sonic frequencies so anyway the the idea is that this thing would be able to whisper to birds and scare them out of the trees you don't have to blast them you just make the trees seem like they're haunted <laughs> because the birds are like where's that coming from I'm, i feel like, like i'm wait, in the you know, show lost the whispers exactly. Exactly. so so that now is it because there's interference outside of the direction is that it cancels out is that why you'd only hear it in that one point that you're you're pointing it towards yeah um there's there's some confusion about how this happens but um some of what i've read indicates that the sound is actually reconstructed when it arrives at its target that is the Mm -hmm. actual the the act of it hitting something there there there's something called an audio spotlight technology yeah where you you can you can aim this at a wall and when it hits the wall that's when the ultrasonics is demodulated into sonic frequencies. And so it, 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 to anyone standing around, the wall appears to be the source of the sound, not some, some transducer mounted up and back behind somewhere. So it's really cool technology. That yeah, I, that, that is. That's, that's, uh, that's fantastic. All right. Well, I like hearing uh, the updates on the portable sound blaster. We're going to get to how the Internet works, uh, but we have uh, a SpinRite testimonial first. Actually, yeah, we have uh, a, a, a listener, Bob Thibodeau. Thibodeau. I, 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 I believe my get, I'm 97% certain it's Thibodeau because I knew someone I you, spelled it the same way, pronounced it that I, way. I think you got it. Bob Thibodeau, uh, his subject was YAT, Y-A-T, yet another testimonial. And he said, Steve, ho-hum, just another testimonial about a business saved by Spinrite. <laughs> and he said, being an avid Twitter, T-W-I-T-E-R, not Twitterer, mm-hmm. Twitterer, 
I've been addicted to security now since episode number one. Long, long, oh, he says long about uh, security now number 50. I decided that I should invest in Spinrite for the four computers in my business. Since I don't have a dedicated IT department and I'm the resident geek, I, and I never made time for, routine, for routine tests. Actually, this is the moral of the story, but we'll get to mm-hmm. that in a second. So he says, it was Microsoft's Tuesday update on May 8th when it began. I had updated three of the computers when I was in the shop updating number four. All went well until the post-update reboot. Then, nothing. I tried booting off a boot CD, but dir c colon backslash reported nothing. I had not backed up this computer in a little too long, and on it were critical customer files for some impending jobs. Yikes. What to do? After much fretting and wringing of hands, I remembered I had invested in Spinrite after hearing you telling Leo about some of the letters you'd received. I got out the CD storage case and found my copy of Spinrite, which I had burned to CD, popped it in and ran the recovery. After a few hours, I came back and it was finished. It had recovered some sectors and marked several others as unrecoverable. I held my breath and rebooted. The C colon backslash drive was back, and Windows seemed to start okay. But then it choked partway through with the error NTOSKRNL, the NTOSKernel.exe, missing or damaged. I'm no IT pro, but I knew that a missing NTOS kernel was not good. A Windows repair or reinstall was probably in order. But I didn't want to risk losing the critical customer file, so I decided to pull the hard drive and pop it into a USB case. I plugged it into another system, which was working, and voila, thanks to Spinrite, the C directory appeared. I copied the necessary customer files and directories and reinstalled the hard drive in the system. All seemed to be in order until I went to the CD storage case to get the Windows install disk, but it was not to be found. I had the CDs for the other systems, but they were XP Pro systems, not XP Home, as this one was. I tried running the Windows repair, but it reported missing file ntfs.sys. I tried copying it from another system, but got the same error. Clearly, a reinstall was in order. Now, if only Spinrite could recover the missing Windows install CD, which he says is a joke because, of course, it was missing. He says, the rest of the story, I was unable to locate the missing CD, so I bought a Windows Home upgrade CD, and the system is up and running once again. Jobs got done and products delivered. Thanks for the great product and for all your white hat products like Shields Up and the like. Keep up the good work and the fascinating netcasts with Leo. Regards, Bob, at Imprinted Specialty Products Company. And, of course, the moral here is if... He had only run the Spinrite, which he had purchased from time to time. It would have prevented this from getting to the point where Spinrite was able to get the drive back, which was good because then he was able to get his critical files off of it. But he had pushed it a little bit past the point where it was able to bring those particular OS files back to the point that they would be able to boot Spinrite. We've heard many stories where Spinrite did make the system bootable again. In this case, it had gone too, it had gone too far. 
So I'll just remind people, uh, I know that many people have purchased Spinrite uh, to support the podcast and, and me and my efforts, for which I'm eternally grateful, but do use it. Every so often, take it out and yeah. run it because it'll keep your drives from getting into a condition where you'll wish you'd used it sooner. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of kernel headaches. Especially when you've already bought it. Yeah, exactly. All right, real quickly, I want to uh, thank New Tech. Uh, they're the folks who give us the TriCaster that allows us to do all the switching and everything we do. The new TriCaster 850 is pretty much like having a giant TV truck down there with our servers, except it doesn't take up near as much room as a giant TV truck, and it gives us all of the capabilities of having a major studio in a box we can take with us when we go remote. TriCaster lets us broadcast, live stream, project, and record HD video all at the same time. Those of you who are like, hey, where's that HD video Twit's going to have? It's in the works, and the reason it's in the works is because we've got the new TriCaster 850 with HD streaming. So if you're interested in TriCaster for your own business or your own broadcasting, check it out, newtek.com. Uh, and we thank TriCaster uh, for, for, the eight, for making the 850 and uh, giving us a chance to do Better transitions, better CGs. Everybody loves it. So check it out, newtek.com. Let's get to the the main topic today, uh, part two of how the Internet works. We're talking about ICMP and UDP. Right. Um, four weeks ago, we started in on a, a, an updated, we're going to take our time, do a real thorough look at the fundamental underlying sort of core technologies of the Internet. So... Last time when we did our first episode of this um, ongoing series, um, I explained how there was this, this fundamental conceptual breakthrough that the pioneers of the Internet made where instead of having a, a physical connection from one point to another – the way we did at the time, we had leased lines where there was a telephone line permanently anchoring two endpoints that they could use for communicating. Or we would do a dial-up with a modem in order to dial in to a modem pool to hook up to CompuServe or the source or you know any of the or, or all the BBSs that existed um, on on a much smaller scale than than the big providers. But in every instance, there was a essentially an unbroken connection from these two points. So the concept of, 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 of changing that and going to a so-called a, a, a packet-based approach well, it was a huge breakthrough. The idea that, as we discussed four weeks ago, you would have routers which were, which were linked to each other and you would send your your individual packets which were addressed to a destination IP address and sort of just trust or hope really that they would get there. Each router's job was to receive the packets, treating them all pretty much the same and just look at the at, at the IP pack or the, the IP header in the packet which enclosed whatever payload this was was carrying and all it would see was that it was typically version 4 which is what we've always had before and we know that we're all in the process slowly of moving to version 6 
but traditionally it's been version four. And really the only information, there were, there was a few pieces of information that we talked about four weeks ago, primarily the destination IP, which was a 32-bit um, number composed of four bytes. The router would look in its so-called routing table and essentially just decide when the, when the packet came in, which one of the connections that the sort of the outgoing connections that connected it to the next router should this packet be put out on and it would send it on its way. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the fine points today of, of what it took to really make that work and two of the simplest protocols that exist um, on the on, – on the, um, the simplest protocols carried by the, the, the IP protocol. I used the example um, four weeks ago of nested Russian dolls where, where one of the key concepts is a hierarchy of protocols. The beauty of that is that it made it future-proof. That is, all the router – the routers on the internet – had to understand was the IP protocol, which was as simple as it could possibly be. It carried the version number, which told it what the – and the version number was the first four bits of the first byte of the packet. So it immediately identified the format of the balance of the packet. For example, an IPv6 IP packet has a different format it, because, for example, it's got a 128-bit source IP and destination IP, not 32. So the header in the packet is different for IPv6 versus IPv4. So it's the very first four bits that come in tells the router, oh, here's the format that you can expect to find in all the bits that follow. But the the one of the key insights that the developers of the internet had was we're not going to worry about anything but the absolute minimum information that we need to get the job done meaning that and this is where this the, this nested dolls visualization comes in is the the ip packet itself is the ip header with an undefined payload the packet doesn't care what it's carrying. The router doesn't care or even know what it's carrying. Its job is simply a little bit of housekeeping and then forwarding the packet on. And this is why net neutrality and deep packet inspection really drives some people nutty because it messes with that. Yeah, exactly. It's beginning to break these rules, which I mean, and it's, it's the integrity of these rules which is so responsible for, for the Internet surviving as well as it have and for the Internet being as apolitical, you know, like yeah. in, 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 in the true sense of politics. It doesn't, it doesn't like or dislike any particular traffic. It doesn't know or care what, what this traffic or that traffic is. It just gets it and it sends it towards its destination. Now, one of the problems that the designers – realized they would have is the is is the question of what's called router loops that is you we have this 
imagine just a a complex network of interconnected routers and each router has a routing table which when it receives a packet an ip packet it looks at the destination ip and it looks in this routing table to determine the a direction that the packet should be sent that is which of its outgoing connections to other routers take it take this packet towards its destination and that's all it does it essentially puts it in the output queue and and when there's bandwidth available out it goes on the next hop towards its journey well the designers realized if you had a big network of these routers it was possible for a router to make a mistake if its routing table weren't configured correctly so that a packet might bounce in the wrong direction. That is, it might be sent out the wrong interface and it was possible that it could come back around to an earlier router in a, in a, just in, in a, in a network of, of interconnected links. So if that happened, you'd get a loop. It's stuck in a circle, just go into the same routers over and over again, right? Exactly. And so the, the problem is what would potentially happen is you'd have packets that would never die. I mean, very much like we have, you know, like malware and, and spyware and viruses and worms that are still out there from a decade ago trying to reproduce. They never die. Zombie packets. Yep, they're on some they're on some server in a closet somewhere that got infected with code red or NIMDA or something, and it's just out there. It's just out there randomly probing the internet the way it has been for ten years, and it's never going to go away. So they said. So the designers said, "Okay, we need we need expiration of packets. We need we want the packet to be able to get to its destination, but." We need it not to live forever because that would be bad. I mean, the, the entire Internet would end up getting clogged up potentially with packets that never die, that just go around in circles forever and bog the whole system down. So what they added to this, this fundamental outer layer, the IP layer, that, that the outer wrapper, no matter how deep this wrapper goes, the outer layer that's handled by the routers has has something called TTL, the time to live. And it's a byte, which we know can have up to 256 different values. They, and again, here's where we get brilliance on the part of these guys. The any any router that receives an, an incoming packet, and that's what all routers do. Every router that receives this packet decrements the TTL value that the packet currently has from whatever value it comes in at. It subtracts one. If that number ever goes to zero, that is, if after subtracting one, it's now zero. So the incoming packet had a TTL of one, which the router subtracts one from it goes to zero the router simply um drops the packet it will not forward it on and 
And that simple, just something that simple, that measure solves the problem of packets living forever. And in, in fact, what, what the router will do um, is it reports, this is one problem that it reports. We talked, we talked last week about how if routers got congested, they would not generate a report. That is, if, if a router was trying to forward a packet and the buffer on the outgoing link couldn't hold any more packets waiting for transmission, it, would, it, it had permission, formal permission from the original designers to simply discard the packet. Well, that, that was one of the things that freaked out the original designers because this meant that sending traffic across the Internet was unreliable. You couldn't count on it getting there. But they said, hey, that's a consequence of packet routing. We're, we'll worry about that later. We're just going to do a best effort forwarding of packets across routers. And we do not want to generate more traffic in, 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 in the case of congestion because that would be bad. So we're just going to drop it. In the case of a, of a router's packet expiring, though, the router will send back a message to the packet's originator, since the IP packet coming in has both a destination IP address where it's going to, where it would like to go to, or was trying to get to, and a source IP that tells the router the IP address that that generated that packet, all other things being equal. We know that there are like spoofing of source IPs and so forth. We'll be talking about that at length in the future. But the router will send back sort of a maintenance level packet and that's where this first protocol that lives on top of or inside of the IP protocol comes in that's ICMP um the um the router sends back a message um saying time exceeded essentially um in the it it, it encodes in the ICMP packet the, the, there's a there's like a, a, a type of, of ICMP packet and then a subtype. And so the router sends back a message saying the time exceeded, meaning that your packet didn't make it to its destination. For whatever reason, it timed out. It died. It's time to live expired before it got to its destination. So, um, so this does a number of things. First of all, Historically, this was really interesting because the Internet didn't used to be very large. In the beginning, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't global in scope. It started off just being a bunch of universities and, and a few government um, entities interconnected experimentally to see if this whole thing worked. So packets never had to jump very many times. Remember that time to live doesn't mean seconds it, it, it isn't enough it, it, even though it's called time to live it's not the flow of time it's the number of routers it's the number of hops that's like a, it's like a counter it's like balls and strikes exactly so or in in this yes exactly um so um the original operating systems were setting the ttl to a relatively no low number like 16 or maybe 32 they because that was enough 
the the internet didn't have it wasn't that big it didn't have that many routers but as isps came on board as as isps had their own tiers of routers and as isps were connected to isps the internet grew and there was this notion of the internet diameter which is a cool concept in, in the same way that a circle's diameter is the distance between the furthest points on a circle, the internet diameter is the largest number of hops between the furthest two points anywhere on the internet. I mean, you, we probably never, you never thought about the internet yeah, yeah. Having, a di- having a diameter. But it, it, the analogy applies. So the idea would be someone at that location trying to send a packet to the machine at the other farthest away point on the internet well even with everything working correctly no router loops no routing table problems if the operating system generating the source the original ip packet were setting its ttl too low it couldn't reach the destination. Right. And that happened. There was a period of time, and this wasn't long ago. This was maybe 10 years ago. And we had Windows and we had Unix. I mean, the Internet was maturing. Some people in some locations were unable ever to get to other websites. They were too they- far away from the website. They were too far away. <laughs> it's and weird so, to think about that. Isn't that neat? Yeah. yeah. And so there was, when that was recognized as a problem, there was a quick flurry. And, 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 and again, it's like the guys who originally designed these, they were, there's like this sort of this approach of conservatism. It's, you know, the TTL was eight bits. They didn't give it 32 because... The internet could never be four billion hops in diameter. They gave it eight, and they thought, well, but that's, you know, and they initially set it to 16, so it just counted down from that. So if anything was more than 16 routers away, and no one was in the beginning, then there'd be a problem. But what they realized was, oh, crap, you know, the internet got bigger all of a sudden, and we weren't paying attention, and our operating systems are still setting the TTL too low. So operating systems quickly change that. And in fact, there are some that are at 128. Many are now uh, setting the TTL to 255, which is the maximum value it can have. Are we so, ever going to run out of TTL? Um, it's actually a problem. <laughs> I mean, it, it, if we ever had that many hops, I mean, that you'd have to you know, be very deep probably in a very deep hole somewhere trying to reach somebody else in a very deep hole somewhere else Mars. so that you had to go many routers out to the top then many routers along the so-called internet backbone mm-hmm. and then many routers back down into another hole somewhere in order not to be able to get there because that's an awful lot of hops um but so um so that's where and why this whole ttl this time to live occurred now, one of the things which this creates 
is which has been a mixed blessing for ISPs is the ability to trace the route that packets take. Hence um, trace route. Exactly. So th- the way that works is you're normally you emit an IP packet of whatever sort with a TTL deliberately large enough to get to the other end, wherever it's going. And these days we set them to 128 or sometimes 255 and off they go. And that's all you hear about it. But we do know that any router that is responsible for expiring a packet by decrementing that TTL value to zero, it has a responsibility to send back a notice that, sorry, this thing died on the vine. We couldn't, I'm not allowed to send it any further and, you know, and I'm not going to, so I'm going to send you back a notice letting me know. Well, what, and the, the ICMP packet that it sends back has its IP, that is the IP address of of its own interface that that it uses for originating that packet back to you. So when when you, the sender of a packet that died out there on the internet somewhere, receives this this ICMP time exceeded message, you get the you get the um, the source IP of that message is is the router IP where the packet died. Well, now clever Unix guys who were putting this all together in the beginning said, "Hey, it would be cool to be able to trace the route." And actually, more than cool, it might be very necessary in some cases sure. to trace the route that a packet takes. So let's let's come up with a command in initially this was in Unix, where we will deliberately set the TTL to one and launch the packet. Well, we know what happens. The first router it hits decrements that one to a zero and goes, oh, crap, this packet died. And so it sends back an ICMP time exceeded message with its IP, which we, the, 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 the entity trying to trace route this, we, we like print that out on the screen or record it. Then we send a packet to the same goal, the same destination but this time with TTL set to two. So it goes to the uh-huh. first router, which decrements it to one. Then it goes to the second router, which decrements it to zero. And that and router now has the dilemma of being un, you know, unable to forward it. So it sends back its ICMP time exceeded message with a source IP of, you know, of its source IP back to us. And so clearly, right. by simply sending out packets successively with with an incrementing TTL, we're able to get back the IP address of every router along the way that this particular packet addressed to this particular destination would take. 
And not only until, do you get the map, but you you know by the TTL number how many hops it was, independent of counting up the number of IP addresses you get. Yep. And then th- then you can do one other thing, which is a little bit flaky, but it can be useful. Which and, and this is what software does. You can measure the length of time for that round trip. The reason it's I say it's a little flaky is that you ca- you never really can know when a packet goes a few hops out and then comes a few hops back. There's no way to to individually know like which link might have been slow but if you do it if you do it often then because you are getting sort of a a total loop time for a a packet that expires and comes back if there were a, a one router that were like really really bogged down and having a problem and if your if the if the round trip time suddenly increased when you want one router further than that, that would be a way of sort of nailing the responsibility of a, a, of a slow router at a, at, you know, at, at a specific location. Now, is that how we get ping? Well, ping is a little different. Ping is, is it, it's actually, whereas the, um, the destination unreachable message is, message, is, is type code three in, in the ICMP packet, the, the so-called echo reply is zero. It's like the original, the original message. I'm not sure why echo request is eight, but the idea is ping is a little different, but sim- it's the same sort of like underlying internet um, plumbing. The, um, you, uh, ping is another command that probably all internet savvy users know about where you just say ping space and then um, you're able to put, for example, www.microsoft.com, and your computer will look up the uh, the IP address of Microsoft.com in the same way that your browser does, and then send off a a packet in that direction. What it's doing is it takes a standard IP packet, gives it the normal TTL. That is, we don't want this one to expire. We want it to actually get to its destination. And the payload of that, of that IP packet is an ICMP packet. So here, again, we get this nesting of the protocols that the IP packet contains an ICMP packet um, of type 8, which is echo request. And so this is, this is the, the originator just asking to verify connectivity, and that, thus the word ping, which sort of comes from a sonar radar, where you, you ping something and, and get back an echo from the, you know, a, a sonar echo from, from the, the burst of, of sound that you sent out. This is sort of exactly the same thing from on, 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 in, in the internet world. The idea being that by agreement, universal agreement, all machines connected to the internet should when they when when the machine itself not the not programs running in it not servers running in it or or services or or applications or anything else nothing running in the machine the operating system itself which is hosting the so-called ip stack when when that ip stack receives a packet and looks at it 
to decide what to do with it, it sees that that IP packet contains an ICMP echo request right there and then, requiring no other processing. It's supposed to send back an echo reply. And that is sort of fundamental, low-level plumbing of the Internet that allows engineers that the convenience of making sure that routers are routing, that links are up, that, that you know, things are working, that you're able to ping the, the destination IP. What that says is, I gave an IP or a domain name, but oftentimes an IP, if, if you're like working w- with the actual plumbing of the internet, you're not looking at, at web domain names, you're, you're actually looking at IP addresses. I was able to ping that IP address and got a response back. The beauty of that is it relies upon nothing else. You know, the maybe the web server's not up. Maybe it's not answering email. Maybe, you know, all these other problems can happen. So that you want to go to the lowest common denominator and determine whether your traffic, any traffic, is making it there and back. Because if you if it doesn't respond to ping, then we're talking a little bit about the original days because, unfortunately, these rules have been broken. Mm. But if it doesn't respond to ping, then that's where you start. It's like you got to get that working first. Then you know you've, you've, your traffic is getting there and back, and you can then start working your way sort of up into more sophisticated levels. The problem is both ping and ICM and, and trace route have security problems i'm i'm guilty of of popularizing the notion of of computers being stealthful of them not revealing themselves at all and one of the things that ping does is it says ah there's somebody at that ip address well you know if everybody were wearing white hats and we were all you know being good guys then this wouldn't be a problem, but it's it's sometimes the case, unfortunately, that bad guys are using these protocols against us, and ping can create um, a, a security vulnerability just verifying that that machine is there. And in fact, you can flood a user with pings, and that's what some of the early botnets did, is all they did was just ping people like crazy right. because all operating systems are able to use it, and so it's a simple way of just flooding a, a, a given IP with, with traffic that will just bury it. Poor it's man's DDoS. Exactly. Exactly. The other problem is that, that Traceroute, because by, by deliberately expiring packets en route towards a destination, it's possible for bad guys to map the topology that is the interconnectedness through ISPs or into corporations. If every link along the way responds with its IP address back to the sender, then again, malicious, you know, people with, with malicious intent can use traceroute in order to get the IP addresses which of intermediate routers inside of corporations, which corporations may not want outsiders to have, or even ISPs may not want outsiders to have. So, 
So unfortunately, due to abuse of these fundamental protocols over time, rules have been broken. Um, For example, many consumer routers now have an option of whether or not to respond to a ping Mm -hmm. because it's the router itself, the router at that public IP prior to it doing its NAT translation into a private network, it's the router there that is receiving the ping because it's the destination IP address. If all, you know, if the protocols were all going to be obeyed, that the little IP stack in that router would respond with it to an echo request with an echo reply. But unless I'm running a server, I don't want that. I don't want anybody to know my router's there. There's no reason for that. Exactly. And I mean, on, on one hand, it's sort of, it's, it's unfortunate that it's, it's been abused, but it really has been. There were many, you know, years ago when script kitties were, were running little botnets and it hadn't gone sort of big time as it has now, um, they would use the, the ping responses of people they wanted to, to like blast out of IRC chat rooms in order to see whether they'd taken someone down yeah. and, you know, and the, like overloaded their router by, by pinging their router. So, um, so exactly as you say, Tom, um, it's, it seems to me it's unfortunate, but if the, if the end user wants more security, being stealthful, looking like there's nobody there, you know, and not responding to a ping is, is the way to do that. And, and on a much greater scale, ISPs are now often blocking traceroute. They will, they will suppress by configuration, they're, they're suppressing their own router's response to time exceeded messages. They, they will, if, or, if a packet expires inside an ISP, the router drops it, not sending back a time exceeded. So people may have noticed in some cases, if, if any of our listeners have done trace routes, you'll, you'll sometimes notice that you'll, you'll get back a few, like first a few hops, and then there's like a dead zone of some number of hops, and then suddenly it comes alive again. What that dead zone is, 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 a, is a range of routers that have been administratively configured not to send back time-exceeded messages when they expire packets en route. They're, they're just, they, they won't reveal their presence. So there's like a, just a, 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 you know, a, a blacked-out area in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a trace route. Then it'll come alive again because they're willing to pass those uh, those time exceeded pass those time exceeded packets through their network just not to originate them and so so then you'll you'll continue um, trace routing out till you'll finally reach your destination um, and the other thing I should mention is that some ISPs will block ICMP trace routes which is why many users who have state of the art um, internet probing utilities will notice that trace routes can use other protocols. They can use UDP protocol or TCP that we'll be talking about in the future um, because all of those are encapsulated in the IP, the outer wrapping, the IP protocol packet, 
which is where the destination IP lives and this TTL, the time to live, the time to live lives. And I should finally talk about the other, um, the other purposes that, um, that the ICMP packet has. We talked about um, how it's – because it's sort of like your lowest level internet engineering plumbing um, protocol. It, it can it, – it is the packet where you do a ping by, by sending out a, a type 8 echo request and – all other things being equal, receiving a type zero, which is echo reply. The other thing it has is I talked about this time exceeded message. Well, that's contained within a, a ping type three. But, there's, but ping type three is, is sort of a generic destination unreachable message. And then there's a subtype in the ICMP packet where you could have like the reason for it's unreachable. So type three means for, there was a problem. We couldn't, something was unreachable. There might, it might be that the network is unreachable, which is a subtype zero. The host is unreachable, it's a subtype one. The protocol is unreachable. The port is unreachable or fragmentation was needed along the way. And then finally, the other major type is time exceeded. Fragmentation comes up because, as we talked about four weeks ago, there it, it, it is possible for a router to receive a packet of a certain size on an incoming link. But routers are, 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 are sort of heterogeneously connected to a, to a collection of other routers. It might be that the router needs to forward the packet across a network that, for whatever reason, can only handle smaller packets. Um, that used to be the case um, on on um, telephone lines with modems. You might have, for example, a, a chunk of a of, of a network that was bridged or or interconnected using a um, a high speed modem or some other protocol than um, than IP, so it would it would carry the packet, but it wasn't able to by by virtue of the the uh, protocol it was using, it wasn't able to 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 carry a large packet. So the the interface at the the outgoing interface would be configured to know what the maximum packet size is that it's able to send. So again, the bright people who designed all this from day one, they recognized this could be a problem. So they designed into the outer wrapper, that original IP wrapper, the ability for pigments to become fragmented. That is where the where the all not all of the of the packet might be forwardable across the next link that is the next hop toward its destination if that if that happened the router had the ability and the permission by default to chop that packet into one or two or more pieces and then send them on in sort of you know bite sized pieces no router reassembles packets that have been fragmented it's simply 
it simply forwards them on. So if a link is encountered where this where a packet needs to be fragmented, it will it will chop the packet up into however many number of pieces are necessary and send them each on um, toward their destination. And the pack the router that receives it just now it sees them just like any other smaller IP packets and sends them on their way. The problem is that this does create problems for some protocols like like audio protocols where where we care about uh, performance. Uh, suddenly we've got like lots of little packets where um, they're, they're having to be broken up and 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 forwarded. It would be nice. The, the original engineers decided if there was some way to, to probe the network to have it tell us what the maximum size packet it's able to send is. So there is a bit in the header. There's, a, there's a, a, an 8-bit field of flags, just sort of general purpose flag bits in, this, in the original IP header. And one of them is... Is de- actually, I think it's four bits. Come to think of it, I'm just doing this from memory, but I think it's actually just four bits. Um, one of them says is 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 instructs the router not to fragment. It's it's called the DF bit for don't fragment. And if that bit is set in the same way that the TTL going to zero expires the packet and, pre- and prevents the router from forwarding it. If the do not fragment bit is set in an IP packet that must be fragmented in order for it to move outbound from the router, the router will instead send back another one of these ICMP low-level plumbing packets saying destination unreachable, and the reason is fragmentation needed and the router that generates that will include in that message the size of the of the maximum size packet that the link it was trying to send the packet out of can handle so that's called um that's called the PATH MTU. MTU is Maximum Transmission Unit, which is to say what is the maximum size that we're able to use from from where we are to where we're trying to get to. And so what will happen is if, if we are sending a packet out that is too large for any link on its way towards its destination, um, we can set. We can set, and, and, and if we want to, we, we, we want to proactively discover the maximum size packet that we're able to send without causing its its fragmentation along the way. We're able to do that by setting the "do not fragment" bit, which says to whatever router receives it and is unable to forward it because the link it's trying to forward it across can't handle a packet of that size because of what, for whatever reason, the protocol that it's trying to use, then it sends an error back to us with the the maximum size that link can handle. So we receive that and go, ooh, 
Okay, good to know. We then send out packets no larger than that. And again, we may leave the do not fragment bit on until we're sure that we're able to get to the destination. That would tell us if there's any other link even smaller than what we have now. So it's a means of discovering how large a packet we're able to send from from where we are <coughs> excuse me to where we're trying to get to um, uh, along the way and and by again by receiving this these ICMP sort of low level plumbing packets uh, from for, for any trouble that we have of various sorts and there actually have been instances where routers or or even sometimes inexpensive consumer products have not properly handled these critical internet plumbing problems and have messed up traffic as a consequence so i mean there are some of these these protocols that that you know some we can ignore it's like okay you could you you, you could say that not responding to a a ping is okay except even that has caused problems. There Am I remembering inst- this right? Is this what took YouTube off off of the internet? Uh, problem um, with the with the with the routers in some country, and maybe it wasn't YouTube, but I remember something with the MTU uh, being set by a country, and it and it caused huge problems, like you're saying. Yes, it can because uh, and and it, it would be a streaming media company because they really do need to establish you know that they can't have all of their pagment their 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 I was going to say their their um, pagments being f- fragmented but their packets being fragmented um, they they need to determine what that is and so I think you're right Tom I don't remember if it was YouTube but I'm sure that I remember that there were. That if that is not handled correctly, you can end up with some serious problems that you know nothing will get around. Also, there was there was one type of server. I want to say it was an IRC server, where, but I don't know why it would have been. Oh yeah, I, I think IRC. Well, I don't remember now. There was some server where it was you, you would make a connection to it. And well, maybe it was just FTP, um, but I thought it was a little more exotic than that. You would make a connection to it, and it would ping you back to to sort of like verify your that you were there, and and it, and if you didn't respond to that, it would not finish negotiating the protocol. And so there were some instances. I remember that's one of the reasons that I that I thought that the original zone alarm firewall years ago was clever was that they had adaptive stealthing. If if somebody you were not connecting to tried to ping you, the zone alarm firewall would drop the packet. But if you had an outbound you know, an outbound dialogue with a given remote IP and you got an ICMP echo request from them then it would respond and and that zone alarm firewall at the time was the only one that had this smart adaptive ping response which allowed it to do a better job at at creating whatever it was i want to say irc for some reason i don't know why the irc server would have been doing that but anyway it's been a, <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> since i've been thinking about that and uh we have time so i want to just I want to discuss the one one additional protocol 
aside from ICMP, which is another simple, um, perfect example of nesting protocols, and that's the so-called UDP protocol. It stands for User Datagram Protocol. Although some um, it, people it, call it unreliable datagram protocol sometimes. Yes, and, and it's actually um, – it's, it's got both uh, designations, and, and that's actually sort of a play on the fact that it is, in fact, unreliable. But like on the purpose. geniuses – Yes, exactly. Like the geniuses who created all this in the beginning, they designed the system so that – it would still work in the face of, of designed-in unreliability. As we talked about four, four weeks ago, and, and I reminded us earlier, if a router gets congested, it has permission to just discard packets that it's unable to route because its outbound buffers are full and there's too many packets trying to get out on a link that is congested. It's able to just drop it and say, oops, sorry. Wasn't able to do anything with that. So, so we have the 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 outer layer IP packet, which contains the version number of the IP protocol, typically four, someday more typically six. We hope. We know that it contains some flags, like 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 lack of fragmentation per, um, permission. It contains the overall length of the entire packet so that the router knows as data is coming in where the packet ends. Um, we know that it contains the source IP and destination IP. Uh, we know it contains the TTL, the time to live for that packet. And it contains a checksum, which allows the router to verify that there has been no communication error so far as this packet is, is moving from hop to hop across the internet. There's no notion of ports. We, we all heard about and talk about ports a lot. That's not in the IP packet. And that's, again, this is one of the brilliant innovations of, of the originators. All, at the lowest level, all we care about is individual IP addresses. What happens after the packet gets there is is where we begin to add a next layer of complexity. We know that we have the I, the IP packet can can carry this ICMP payload, which is used for low level plumbing. Well, the next the next level up in complexity is it can also carry a UDP packet. And true to form, this UDP packet is the minimum necessary to add just one more little layer of complexity. The UDP packet contains the source port, the destination port, the length of its own payload, and a checksum, followed by whatever it contains. And that's the point, anything. Also, what, what, what UDP adds... To what we already have, which is really not much, it's just just enough to get us there and handle handle specifying where we want to go and handle dying on the vine if we can't get there and handle fragmentation. Just enough. What the UDP adds is some abstraction 
of what we want to do once we get there. And that's port numbers. Ports are nothing but 16-bit values carried in the packet. That's all they are. It's, I mean, it's, you know, we talk about them like they're magic. You know, like port 80 and port 443 and, and, and port we get 13, email. Port, yeah, exactly. And we, and we get email from, you know, uh, IMAP on 143 or from POP on, on uh, 110. Or we send it to SMTP on port 25. And so, you know, ports, 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 port, DNS, you know, is on 53. So, you know, everything is about ports. But all it is is just a number. It's a, it's a destination port where we came from, which is mostly used for the sake of sending something back to us. And the, I'm sorry, the source port, I got that wrong, the source port where we came from, which is, is the source of this traffic, which is used for the, for, the, for the sake of getting something back to us. And then, the des- and then the destination port is like the destination IP. The destination IP contained in the outer IP wrapper, in the IP header, that gets us to the machine. Then if the, if the protocol is UDP, that says, oh, UDP packets contain port numbers. The IP doesn't. The IP header doesn't, but the UDP packet does. So what all that does is, because it contains a destination port, that tells the software running in the computer which service to send this to. So when services start up, like an SMTP, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, service starts up in a Unix machine or whatever server hardware it's running in, it registers itself to listen on port 25. That is, listen for incoming traffic on that port number, which, which essentially says when traffic comes in, and actually, tip, tip, technically, this is TCP protocol, which we'll be talking about next. But, for example, a DNS server li- li- listens for UDP traffic on port 53. And so all these ports are is agreement. They're just abstractions that, that have been sort of universally agreed to. Servers, you know, mail servers will listen on port 110, 143, and 25. DNS servers listen on port 53. Um, web servers listen on port 80 and for secure traffic on 443. And so there's this array of port numbers, the idea being that that allows a sender to identify the class of traffic, the type of traffic that it's sending, simply by saying, I want to send traffic to the following IP, that is a machine at this IP, and to the service at this, the service listening for traffic on this port number. So it's so so the port number which is a 16-bit value, so it can have any value actually port 0 is sort of reserved. So it can from it can have any value from 1 up to 65535 and by convention the first 1k ports, the first 1023 
since we're not counting zero or, or it'd be 1024, the first 1023 ports are reserved as service ports or server ports. Um, and by again, by convention, services typically uh, set themselves up and listen for connections on those ports. And within, in, within systems like Unix, the user processes that are running are unable to listen on those service ports. Only services that are registered with, with the proper permissions are able to set up shop and listen on those lower numbered, the first uh, from, from ports 1 to, to port 1023, those, those are reserved for that. Other user processes are able to listen on higher numbered ports. And so, for example, you'll, you'll often find like a, a system will start up um, an IRQ server and it runs on port 6666, for example, and also the port of the beast. 667. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and sometimes people will run a, an, also an alternative web server on port 8080, which being above that 1023 boundary is up in user space. So it's not where you normally run a web server, which is why it, in order to reach it on the URL that you're, you're, you're using, you've got to put a colon after the URL and then manually override the, your, your web browser's normal use of port 80 and put a colon 8080 to tell your web browser, ah, we're going to connect to this location, but we want the, you, you to connect on port 8080 rather than on port 80, which is what normal web trow, uh, browser traffic would be using. We're so, going to have to wrap it up, uh, Steve, but I know I, we want to get to the important point about UDP at the end here, which is what it's good for, right? Well, yeah, it, it is a general purpose traffic carrying protocol so it's used for udp udp is probably the thing most often it's used for but because it doesn't have we mentioned it's unreliable meaning you can't guarantee it gets there there's 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 no mechanism for the application that generates udp traffic for knowing that it gets there so for example when dns which uses UDP, sends a DNS query in a UDP packet to some server's port 53, which is by agreement just the 16-bit number where the, the DNS server is living. If it doesn't hear a response, that can happen. So it'll send it again. And then it'll wait a little bit longer. It backs off a little bit and, and then sends it again. So it'll retry until it gets a response because nothing that we've talked about guarantees delivery of UDP traffic. That's why it's also known, as you mentioned at the, at the beginning of this, as the unreliable datagram, datagram protocol because it's up to the application itself to, to deal with that delivery. One of the things that, that it's used for often, it, we're using it for right now, Tom, and that is is real-time communications, audio and video, that is to say media streaming on the Internet. We're, I'm sending traffic to you as I'm speaking. It's streaming to you over the UDP protocol, which was chosen because it is so simple. If something gets lost in the way, the audio reconstruction at the other end will try to, like, 
make up for that lost gap. It, or it'll, one little pixel gets dropped, it, it, it can be interpolated, and our eyes even can fix things when that, you know, if the, if the frame rate drops a little low. So it, that's why it's so great for things that are, that are not like we have to have every little piece of it. We just well, want it to and, get there fast. And that, that kind of that boing, boing sound that our listeners will hear from time to time in this podcast, that is a lost packet. That is a packet that was either lost or delayed too long. And the, and the, 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 the codec, which is reconstructing that, couldn't wait any longer. It had to guess. So it tried to fill in using the audio that it already had to, to sort of there isn't an actual dead spot. It figures that that, that funny little kind of that springy sound is better than than, than just having nothing right there. The cry there. of the lost packet. <laughs> so we don't have con- con- congestion control. We don't know if things are too busy. We don't know if things are missing. Oh, we also don't know if they even arrive out of order. That's one of the things that the next protocol we talk about, TCP, handles all of these problems for us transparently. The problem is... It introduces overhead that that can cause a problem. So that's that's useful for downloading files where we we have to have the packets arriving and reassembled in the proper sequence, or our file would get broken. We don't. It's just not so important for when when it's not important. When we really care about minimal overhead, UDP is the protocol we want. When we want when we want the convenience of making sure that something gets. To its destination exactly right, then we use TCP. That's why sometimes you'll hear me say of sentence before end of. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, So, anything else before UDP? Because we have to. We I'm getting the rap signed uh, before we go to Twig. Uh, We got it, and we will. We we will continue when we continue the series with talking about the TCP protocol, which is so brilliantly conceived. Uh, it, it's equal to all the brilliance that we've talked about so far. It is just a spectacular protocol. TCP is really, the one people most likely have heard of because they hear about TCP/IP. That probably that and HTTP are the, the the famous ones. I would say it is probably demonstrable that TCP is the most used protocol in the history of Earth, um, as protocols go. There, it is. The protocol. I mean, you could argue that IP is always there because if TCP is there, then IP is encapsulating it. So, okay, technically, yeah. yes. But I mean, in terms of a high-level protocol, TCP is it because it's all of our downloads, all of our web browsing. I mean, most of what the Internet is used for is over TCP, and we will discuss it in detail next time. All right. Look forward to it. Uh, thank you, Steve. I'll be back with you next week. Leo will be on uh, jury duty for one more week, and uh, and we'll uh, be covering another Q&A session uh, next yep. week. Uh, don't forget, you can find all the things Steve does, and he does some great stuff, over at grc.com, Shields Up, SpinRight, the, the, the Haystack Protocol we were talking about earlier in the show with XKCD. You can get that there. Good place to test out your passwords. Make some uh, more secure passwords. Steve, always great to talk to you. Thanks for letting me uh, sit in for Leo again. It's a pleasure, Tom. Talk to you next week. All right. That's it for Security Now. We'll see you next time. Security Now.